Hey, welcome back everybody to Backtrekking, the podcast where we look back at the real-world inspirations behind classic episodes of Star Trek. I'm one of your hosts, Caliban, and Benson's on my mind, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host. I'm Gooey Fame, and I wish I had my surfboard with me right now. <laughs> I'd wax it. And we've returned to explore the stories behind your favorite Trek shows, and today we're talking about two stories about bombs too smart for their own good. It's the 1974 sci-fi cult classic, Dark Star, and the fifth season Star Trek Voyager episode, Warhead. Yep, uh, fits perfectly. We don't even have to explain it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any necessary explanation needed, but we will talk about the idea behind things that inspire other things, something very important to our show, uh, when we talk about our subjects later. But first, uh, <clears throat> first I'm going to clear my throat. I've been really uh, froggy lately, and I'm, I hope that that's not indicative of, uh, of anything bad. I'm not sure <laughs> like, what that would be. I feel like I always am. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess I, I do talk every single day <laughs> for a living. Yeah, I also hope that it's not like anything bad. I'm like, hopefully I'm not dying. I wonder if um, they used to say that uh, when I was a, a singer, that uh, talking can be um, just as bad, if not worse than singing for you. And so a lot of times huh. when we were resting our voices that, you know, they would say, don't talk or, or sing. And I'm not sure if that's true, because I used to sing all the time, like almost every day. And now I talk every day and it's so much worse. So maybe I'm just getting old. Maybe that's what it is. Um, I just got to stop talking. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> if it turns out that I can't uh, talk anymore, then I guess this is all shot. But, you know, I was thinking the other day, I cut my hand. Actually, no, I actually burned my hand um, on some beans. No more information. I'm not taking any questions at this time. <laughs> but I got like a huge, like it's like a second degree burn. I got a huge blister on my hand and I couldn't hold a, a game controller. And I was like, oh my God, like what if I... Uh, you know, lost a, lost a finger or something like that or lost one of my thumbs. And I know that you can get like, you know, they have like accessible controllers. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. But then it started to like balloon out. And it was like, what if I what if I was was blinded? What if I lost my eyesight? You know, my eyesight has been getting worse as I get older. Like, what if oh. I can't like play video games? What if I can't read? These sort of like body insecurities that I don't know if you're experiencing yet, but <laughs> certainly I... certainly piling up for me. I go through that sort of like insecurity about like almost everything, you know, like not yeah, even I suppose physical. It can <laughs> That's be like, a good oh, point. what if there are a uh, lot of things to worry about? <laughs> monetary, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, I run through the whole catalog. I th I don't know how practical of a person you are, but I feel like I'm I'm a fairly practical person, but I'm also somebody who has never really worried about that sort of thing, and so now that I am, it's so much worse because I have no practice, uh -oh. you know, worrying about it and. Nothing, nothing huge, but like recently I, I had to go to the doctor for a thing and it occurred to me that I don't think I had been to the doctor in over 20 years. Like I just kept living my life and running into things and then like, you know, shaking it off and getting up and just, uh, yeah, it's probably broken. It's probably fine. And never really having to work, uh, worry about anything until I had something that I couldn't really just say, well, I'm just going to keep walking on it, you know? And, uh. And so that's, that's, that's been a whole journey of just learning about like insurance and all these things that I uh, had never really had to worry about when I was younger, but. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm always worrying about things, but stuff like yeah. that, I worry too much and I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to the doctor and then yeah. <laughs> it's like, gets so much worse. Right. Yeah. But I'm trying yeah. to be better about that sort of stuff, but yeah, there's a financial factor involved of how oh, many. Certainly. How many trips to the dentist slash doctor can I get in this year? Yeah. 
Not enough to take care of all of it. <laughs> yeah, the dentist one is the worst. I lucked out on that because uh, I had my wisdom teeth out a long time ago and then just completely randomly, um, I didn't know at the time, but I knew once I went to the dentist, um, a piece of bone or like tooth that had been left in after like 15 years decided to make its way out. And so I was in pain, you know, my jaw and I had this thing poking out and I was, pr I was pretty sure that's what it was, but I went to the dentist anyway and they confirmed it and everything was okay and eventually it came out. But in the meantime, they're like, well, we'll check you and everything. And I realized I haven't been to the dentist <laughs> in like 15, 16 years. And they're like, oh, your teeth are fine. And I'm like, uh, a, it's good. <laughs> B, all that's going to do is just convince me that I'm invincible and I never need to go to the dentist no, or yeah. to the doctor at all. So, yeah. No, I've, I had the opposite experience. The start of like, I think it was two years ago, like the start of COVID, which is, it's like crazy that's two years ago. But yeah, um, well. uh, I, yeah, I became a little bit more convinced. I was like, well, I have this job with like some benefits. So, I sh you know, I can afford to go and i was like yeah. okay i'm gonna start to fix these things and i started with the dentist because that was the one i was most worried about and i had the opposite where i went in they're like you you need this 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 and this done and i'm still like making yeah. my way through the checklist of that and it's not like one of those things where they are like they're not swindling me you know what i mean it's well, like I, ho I hope not i hope not it's like cavities I, and stuff like that. Oh, know? sure, sure. Because I went cause that first time that I went to the dentist, they're like, everything looks great. Oh, and you'll need uh, five cavities filled. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? That, is that a thing? Really? Like, how can I be okay and have five cavities? Yeah. And then I went to this other dentist who was recommended by a couple friends of mine. And he's like, no, that's fine. I mean, there's nothing really that we have to do here. I think your teeth look pretty good. So. Oh, so maybe I'm getting swindled. Well, I'm not saying I'm not, say, I'm not telling you to refuse care. Maybe cavities but. are BS. <laughs> Screw you, cavities. I never believed in you. But uh, you know, I mean, there are. To be fair, the first dentist I went to was on a college campus, and so I think their entire racket was. We've got our, the, you know, these are kids at college, so already they've got money from somewhere. They're on their parents' insurance, and so we're just gonna fill these cavities, you know. And as soon as the pandemic began to stress their business, they went out of business, and they're not even around anymore. Oh wow! Okay. So yeah. Hmm. So there's, you know, there's predatory uh, service <laughs> individuals at every service, but I'm sure no, that they're doing fine. My dentist. It's been great. My dentist is a little rude, actually, but the oh, really? <laughs> the, the overall experience is has been great. My, uh, my dentist, well, I grew up in a small town and we had one dentist. And so he was my dentist uh, and everybody's dentist for years and years and years. And he just uh, retired a couple years ago, but he still sees like his older patients. And so my mom was, my parents have moved out of the state now, but my mom was saying, call up Dr. So-and-so and to make an appointment, he'd see you. He remembers your mouth. He helped you get your braces and everything. I'm sure it'd be fine. And I'm like, um, you know what? <laughs> that seems a little weird to me, but I guess at the same time, like he's got to worry about his retirement income and keeping busy. And if it's, if he's allowed to practice still, maybe that's what I should do. I don't know. And, and he I tells me. Ten cavities, I, and then I know. Oh yeah, no, those oh, are real. Okay, yeah, yeah. See, in almost any situation, I feel like knowing a guy is the best situation. It's like yeah. if you know a dentist, definitely, that's pretty good. Yeah. Do you know any electricians? I need one of those. Uh, my, my dad is an electrician. Oh, okay. We're talking after this. <laughs> okay. For sure. 
All right. Cool. Uh, but before we talk about that uh, and we talk about our subject, I want to talk really fast about the fact that Nicholas Meyer, uh, a big figure, of course, in the world of Star Trek films, directed two and six, uh, wrote two, four and six, uh, has been talking for a while about this con show that he wants to do, which is essentially a con prequel story that will kind of give us like the rise of con and mm-hmm. his eventual um uh, however, he ends up on the uh, Botany Bay, you know, when he sees Kirk, and he's a guy who, you know, I read his um, his autobiography because uh, we were talking about it on Enterprising Individuals. He's a really interesting guy, but he is a guy who it seems like uh, has had a lot of trouble getting things made the way he wants, you know, with his Hollywood career, and also is somebody, and maybe this contributes to that trouble, somebody who's like doesn't take a lot of shit from people, and so he initially, uh, I think, oh, had I been you. talking. A couple of years ago, he had mentioned that they were talking to him about this idea, which seemed like a cool idea, and it hasn't really gone anywhere. And so, like a couple months ago, he just took to the internet and just went to try to shame Paramount. I think it was just like, "Here's my idea," and he sort of gave the pitch in this video, and it sounded really interesting and kind of like the balls in your court. Well, it looks like they've taken the ball and they are deciding to do something with it, and it's going to be a podcast. It sounds like interesting. It's huh. going to be, uh, according to what uh, Meyer has said in a post recently, that they are finalizing the deal to turn it into a podcast, which he will write and presumably direct. Again, a little passive aggressive. Seems like he's not sure. Uh, but it's going to be uh, a podcast, uh, a dramatic podcast. And then who knows, possibly if it's successful, uh, might be adapted back into a film. And for me, it's like this could absolutely work. But like yeah. many of Paramount slash CBS's recent moves, it's it, it sort of drips with cynicism. Uh, it, it's clear that they want to, now that they have moved into the, uh, firmly into the streaming TV space, uh, it seems like they want to move into the audio space as well, right? Why let Jeff Bezos have the whole thing with his Batman podcasts and his Sandman pod, all his man podcasts or, or whatever it is? Yeah. Like, why not let Paramount move into the audio space. No, I don't think it's a bad idea, but it's like, it's really interesting that they wanted to do this now. And even though I do think that the Meyer uh, con series could be a good podcast, I feel bad that a guy who has made a bunch of really great movies is going to be sacrificed on the altar of, uh, let's make a podcast out of something. Oh, your thing, your thing. Yeah. Right. It feels both like them wanting to do a podcast now both feels like, they like oh well this transformers is... can't be a podcast <laughs> but a bunch yeah, of people talking true. talking about con could be a it, podcast but it also feels a little bit like taking him and being like god you want to do it okay we'll give you a podcast like no go away yeah right <laughs> but, yeah yeah and it's like well of all because i don't know you think you would uh, want to value like someone who's actually uh written for it before you know yeah, and who has could, arguably, you know, he didn't do it by himself, but arguably saved Star Trek. Like you have mm-hmm. Paramount Plus and all this stuff because of the success of Star Trek Two, and you know, showing audiences that Star Trek was something worth doing, which got people excited about Star Trek: The Next Generation, and so on and so forth. Right. But how about a podcast, though? Maybe oh, they want him to work his magic in the world of podcasts. Yeah, which is yeah, I don't know because you do have like a certain subset of fans who they just kind of are they're just not trustworthy of like the new writers of trek and don't you think that could be like a marketing thing like hey you want someone who 
you claim you want someone who understands Star Trek. Well, we got this is your guy, the guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. you think you think that would be great for like a, you know, a, a, a strange new worlds type thing because that's kind of the push for that show too, or like the pitch is like. You like old Star Trek, right? <laughs> Here it is. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I think that maybe they are trying to bring his legitimacy to the world of podca- uh, podcasts. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, for good and bad. Like, I don't know. Like, I have not yet really got it myself into the world of, um, of dramatic or, or, or like, uh, comedic um, fictional podcasts. Um, but... You know, a Star Trek might make me try it, you know, since I'm familiar with Star Trek. So I don't know. It just it seems like a real smart marketing move, but I would really rather support the artist and hope that he gets to do it the way he wants to do it. So hopefully he will be able to um, accept the compromise and uh, and make something uh, that will help Paramount in that sphere. But, you know, I just uh, you said it, audio drama, a little uh, engine noise, a little, uh, you know, the red alert noise. <laughs> I would love and... to have the hum the whole time. That's yeah, something the all new Trek is missing, I feel like, is I, unless my, I just don't hear it on my TV. But I feel like I don't get the hum as much. I have not really listened close enough to say Strange New Worlds to know if there is a hum, but it's I guess I wouldn't be surprised. A little bit more music going on. You know, things are yeah, that's a true. bit more music. Like, this is how you need to feel right now. And I feel yeah. like that... <laughs> Yeah. Whereas, like, there are so many scenes in Next Gen where it's just dead silent and you just hear, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I think it could be good. I mean, um, I listened to that, like, Wolverine one oh, from did a you? while huh. back. And yeah. I thought it was, it was pretty neat. I, I like a good, like, you know, audio drama. That's, a, you know, that's something they figured out a long time ago. So it's not hard to do good, I don't think. Yeah, and um, there has been, I'm sure there has been uh, Star Trek audio dramas, you know, like on tape or in in the past. They certainly, uh, there's been uh, the example of Star Wars. So, you know, it's not, it's not a crazy idea, but uh, we'll, we'll see yeah. what happens. And I guess more updates as we get them. They're, they're missing out by not making it a show set in the 90s during that time period because then they can have all the people love like oh hey there's a blockbuster you know <laughs> uh, yeah they totally do that yeah and paramount the way that they you know pick up things and execute them uh even though that i think that it's a little uh a little played out uh it's perfect time for a paramount to jump in just like when they did with the nfts yeah yeah exactly <laughs> just right just in time That's what to, everyone to wanted. catch the nft train that's what the T stands for. It's the, the, the NF train. The new fun train. <laughs> uh, let's get to the fun part of our show. Whether through satire, parody, or pastiche, artistic homage is in itself a valid and worthwhile art form. And it better be. We're doing a whole podcast about it. <laughs> Artists, musicians, and filmmakers receive their inspiration from earlier works of art and indeed comment on their artistic forebears in their own work. In the relatively nascent world of cinema, this is more than doubly true, with many filmmakers staging sequences and employing characters and tropes that reference earlier influential works. Just Google the Odessa Steps sequence for insight into that phenomenon. When legendary filmmaker and cinematic iconoclast John Carpenter landed at USC Film School in the early 70s, he knew two things, that he loved genre fiction and he wanted to be a filmmaker. 
To do that, he'd need to direct a student film, one written by friend and classmate Dan O'Bannon, intended to poke loving holes in the bilious beach ball of the recent 2001 A Space Odyssey. The result was the 1974 cult film classic, Dark Star. It is the future. Mankind has conquered the stars. He moves out to the endless interstellar reaches of the universe. An advanced exploration call. A new breed of pioneer must seek out unstable planets and destroy them. Drive sequence begun. Hit it, pin back. of the 21st century planet smashers dark star 20 years in space 1 million light years from earth their job is to clear a path for the colonization of space back home back home in Malibu I used to surf a lot Talby I used to be a great surfer travel in an infinite universe with mind-melting excitement from beyond the stars. Computer to bomb number 20. Return to the bomb bay immediately. But I have received the operational signal. I wish I had more time. Why don't you have more time? Because I must detonate. I must detonate. Commander Powell. Commander Powell, this is Doolittle. Can you hear me? This is the second John Carpenter I think we've done because we did the thing before, right? Yeah, yeah. I think and, that's all we've done so far. Yeah. yeah. And the, yeah, well, more to come. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, this is, you know, this is his first movie. Uh, this is the first movie that he ever did. Uh, he originally directed it as a student project. It was about 45 mm-hmm. minutes long for USC. This is before he, he, he dropped out of USC because he was too cool for USC. Uh, but it's <laughs> funny right, because... Course. He is, he is, uh, I mean, now, now he's John Carpenter. He did it his own way. Uh, I'm sure many um, directors are envious of, of uh, his career and the way that he got to mostly do it the way that he wanted to do. But if he had stayed, his name might be spoken, you know, in the same breath as George Lucas, John Milius, John Landis, and all these other, you know, Southern California uh, film mafia type guys. But he was there at USC directed this film as his student project. It was then later picked up by a like small-time distributor who uh, gave them a little more money to sort of fill the film out and uh, shoot a little a couple extra scenes, bring it to feature length. And the whole thing cost about $60,000 total. Wow. And, and between uh, Carpenter himself and his uh, co-producer, co-writer, 
uh, Dan O'Bannon, uh, they both agree that like the movie was way better before they added all the extra crap that the producer made them add to it. Right. Yeah. It feels like it feels like longer than it should be, I guess. Or, or I just felt like there was like a whole because it's like there's this whole thing going on with the computer system. But then it's like partway through the movie, they're like, and there's an alien you got to feed. And then they're chasing an alien around. And it yeah. was like, yeah. I actually liked it pretty much everything in the movie though it just felt like weird like it almost felt like a separate movie in the middle of the movie you know yeah um that is a, a total effect of <laughs> of what you're describing and him uh you know them being told to uh, to make it longer um you know chasing an alien in a funny way uh, around the ship uh and the laughs that that didn't get from some of the audiences uh led Dan O'Bannon to think what if an alien was chasing people in a scary way and that's why he wrote the movie Alien in 1979. Yeah, it's watching it. It was like, this feels exactly like the alien, like Alien, but funny. And I actually thought it was funny. It was very like Tom and Jerry a little bit. Like, yes. Looney he's getting Tunes. beat up. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I liked it. I like it was like a. It was like clearly just a beach ball, you know. That was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely. It absolutely was a beach ball. Uh, it was a beach ball that was operated by Nick Castle, who's also a film oh. director, an actor, friend of John Carpenter's, and the played uh, Michael Myers, played The Shape in the original Halloween. Yes. Yeah, that's and awesome. Co-wrote Escape from New York. Dan O'Bannon, who, I mean, you know, I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. We're probably going to talk about him some more, but we should definitely give Dan his credit here in the episode that... He, he really does have an, an incredible career. Um, just some of his, like, you know, writing efforts. Of course, Dark Star and Alien. Uh, he wrote on the uh, heavy metal animated movie. Uh, mm. The series and film of Blue Thunder. Uh, Life Force, Total Recall, Screamers. Uh, also the, uh, you know, story credits on the uh, remakes of Aliens and, and, and uh, Total Recall. So um, definitely just is another person who is uh, very influential um, in what people think of as like 80s and 90s, you know, sci-fi drawing from a certain tradition. And on this film, he also plays the role of Pinback. He was the film editor for the film. He was also the special effects supervisor and a production designer for the film. So a lot of these things Super that you see are, yeah, are down to him or at least him, you know, yelling at the right people to get it done. <laughs> yeah, he, um, yeah, when he, I was like, is Pinback is the, is the band Pinback named after him? There's a band called Pinback, and I, would I looked have to it imagine up, that that's true. And it is true. And I I didn't know this because I only know a few of their songs, but they're pretty good. I would recommend them. Uh, but I guess I read that they even like sample clips from Dark Star in their songs, oh, which is okay. pretty cool because most of their songs I hear are like chill indie songs, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it's not even like an obvious like, oh, that's the obvious like movie to mash up with that type of music you know yeah i th i thought that my only connection musically was i think like human league like one of their early sig uh, singles has uh, samples like the uh the movie during one of their songs mm. i can't remember, remember the name of the song though but um the, the music in this is is awesome too uh yeah yeah i'm pretty sure it's john carpenter right and of course of course it's john yeah. carpenter yeah yeah um yeah so so good so like they the two of them i guess both work together to create i you know say what you want about i don't know if this is like his best movie i've ever seen but i i enjoyed pretty much watching all of it because of the vibe for one and then it was it was like pretty funny the whole time even if it all didn't like 
really come together as one thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it, it's funny that like the, and I'm sure that you could probably go to any, you know, film school graduating class of USC and go, and that led to this and this and this, but this, this time, you know, the, the seventies in American cinema, certainly the seventies of sci-fi and, um, films that would become, you know, like blockbuster films, which would dominate Hollywood to this day, like the people working in and around, you know, the, the, the players in this, the, the cast list in this, in this production is, are these people that would become huge, you know, probably the one good thing that John Landis has ever done in his life is, uh, he was a friend of, uh, Dan O'Bannon's and like, <laughs> kind of liked this, thought that their film was funny. And so he sort of got them this deal with this smaller time oh, producer. Awesome. Uh, so like, you know, if he hadn't helped them blow up this movie into a big movie, which wasn't itself successful, but I'm sure gave, uh, you know, experience and, and credit to the people working on it, then we might not have had Alien and all the things that came from that. We might not have had John Carpenter, like as a filmmaker in the in the form that we did. So I guess we have to thank John Landis for that. Um, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Also, yeah, uh, got a hand to him. The special effects, uh, which were achieved uh, as cheaply as possible, obviously, oh, uh, also were worked on by um, by future legends. You know, um, a guy named Ron Cobb, who worked on films like Star Wars, Alien, Raiders, Conan, Back to the Future, Abyss. Uh, he, you know, got his start here basically doing uh, ship designs. Uh, and then, you know, he would design the ships. And then a guy named Greg Jean would do the model works. Greg Jean would go on to work on both Close Encounters and get nominated for an Academy Award on that, and then also did work for the Star Trek franchise, um, doing ship models and designs for uh, later Star Trek shows. That's great. Yeah, they the some of the designs were really cool. Like I like the inside of the computer area where they yeah go into the face. But then there's also the stuff in the movie, like the beach ball or like certain sets they're on that are fun because they like. They're clearly so like cheaply done, but I I don't know. They had a way of like making it both like convincing and funny at the same time, you know? Yeah. Like I was like, yeah, this beach ball alien is a real, he's a real dick, but also he's a <laughs> beach ball. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I suppose any uh, family tree, you know, if you go back far enough, you know, the branches collapse into only a few trunks, but. That's kind of like how it feels like it just feels like I've been talking about the effects behind a lot of the Star Trek films because we're talking about Star Trek films on enterprising individuals this year. And you start to realize, like, again, many, many people worked, you know, painting the models and, and maybe didn't get credit. But like there's like three or four guys that like gave us everything that we think of. Uh, both mm -hmm. Star Wars, Star Trek, all these films in the late 70s and moving into the 80s um, came from like, like a couple different studios uh, of guys who all just like either, you know, worked, went to school together or just like ate lunch every in every weekend together. This feels like it kind of bridges the gap from like, like the like we've talked about a lot of like 50s sci-fi movies, which we know like John Carpenter is really influenced by. Yeah. Um, but it, it feels like it felt like both that kind of movie, but even watching this first one, it also feels like a John Carpenter movie. So like, I don't yeah. know. I, I like that, that it, it is paying a lot of homage or whatever. And like, it's parodying stuff, but it yeah. also feels like n new or like feels like almost like, 
I don't know because I, I, when I feel when I think of a lot of the feel of like a John Carpenter movie like I usually like get like 80s vibes and stuff like that and you can sort of like feel that already in this you know uh, early movie way before that time period I guess yeah um th- you have you have to remember too that like Star Wars is three years away at this point so there isn't what we think of as like oh yeah dirty 70s you know lived in universe look is in the future um and in fact i think in a lot of ways uh you can see influences of uh movies like dark star in star wars um certainly yeah. in the execution of a lot of the effects but you know they were they were uh, they got there first and uh, this film um which, by the way, is like not very long, <laughs> you know, even with no, the extra no. scenes. It's like 83 minutes. It just blows right by. Uh, there is a documentary on YouTube about it uh, that is called Let There Be Light. And the documentary is two hours long. So the documentary is <laughs> longer well, than the film. Okay. <laughs> but they do go. They get all the old cast together, interview them and talk about its influences. And it is kind of a fun documentary. Um, but yeah, this so this film, like, you know, it. It's obvious uh, first inspiration is um, 2001, right? Like 2001 comes out in uh, in 1968, right? And so that would have been, you know, very close to the time that they started writing all this down and starting to think about what they want their student film to be about. Right around the time that they were probably expanding this into a longer film, uh, a film comes out called Silent Running, which I can't remember if we've talked about uh, on the show before, but Silent Running is, it's another one of those films that was probably influenced uh, a little bit by uh, movies like 2001 or maybe even something like Solaris, but it came, m- must have been in process to the point that it, it's, it, it can't be totally ripping off 2001. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, if there oh, are original yeah, ideas yeah. there and it was written by, weirdly enough, uh, Michael Cimino, who is, was a, a filmmaker in his own right, and Stephen Bochco, the the cop show guy who wrote uh, L.A. Law and Cop mm. Rock and all that stuff. And it was directed by Douglas Trumbull, one of the only movies that he directed. He did the effects for 2001. And so he's another like uh, – and, and uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture as well. And so that's about Bruce Dern uh, on a spaceship, and he's on a spaceship with a bunch of other guys in jumpsuits. They're all really bored. They talk to uh, the home base every once in a while, and the home base is like, oh, we're all rooting for you. And they are protecting the last of the forests that have been removed from Earth because <laughs> everything is everything is polluted, and Earth is in, like, you know, end-stage capitalism. And so it's a sort of like a 70s, you know, environmental sort of commentary. But this is kind of like that, only no point. You know what I mean? Like, this is like, what if we just sort of made fun of space movies in general? What if we made fun of the idea of, you know, uh, Dave Bowman having to try to talk Hal off a ledge, you know, his computer. But in this case, they're talking to their bombs. And so you see the influences, but you also see John Carpenter going like, it doesn't have to be about anything. It's just Mm -hmm. it's just fun. Just having fun. Well, he conveys certain things really well, though. Like uh, they do get like kind of the the isolation you know that's like a common theme uh you know i think of like the thing has that too or whatever um so maybe yeah i don't know i think it is kind of about things even if he's like we're making a we're making a mess of this you know like even even the bomb thing i thought it was very funny it was very it was the best part i think but uh i thought it was it was like interesting enough too that i was like like could see this 
in like in a normal movie <laughs> i guess you know like uh, that's not like this like that even though they're not taking it seriously i like kind of took it seriously maybe maybe i was just like under the influence a little bit but i was like whoa that's crazy <laughs> maybe maybe the voyager episode is the example of that because that episode it plays it very seriously like it's this is not the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard of like we're trying to talk down a bomb and that's one thing i loved about the voyager episode was like how seriously it felt like they took it yeah (laughs) um yeah the the idea of um them having a computer that they talk to and like the computer like talking to them um the the room where the computer that's like the computer's room even though they're like kind of starved for space there's this room that's just the computers all that kind of reminded me of alien you know like having mother mother and yes the, uh, and the room where you go interface with mother and like the dehumanizing aspects of their job like taking something like space exploration which should be amazing and they're traveling and and the hard sci-fi elephants uh, elf Hard sci-fi elephants. That's my band. The the hard sci-fi elements uh, of having them, you know, being gone for twenty years on this thing, but because of um, because of uh, time dilation, they've only aged a couple of years. But you know, it might as well be twenty years for them. Um, right. Yeah. The fact that when they get into their they they don't have like a cool bridge, you know, in like a control area. Like they're all just crammed into this thing that clearly you'd have to all slide out one by one if you're going to go oh, it's uh, awful. Yeah. go back to your room or something. So yeah, just having space exploration be this horrible job. I mean, that's, there's, there's a commentary there for sure. Um, trying to make your bombs or, and your machines so smart that you don't have to do anything. And the, uh, the problems that that causes, I mean, that's all, that's all commentary. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. His, his delivery too, when he was talking down the bomb, he's like kind of, I don't know, over-exaggerated, like, I guess he's floating in space, but it's like, it really feels like you're really trying to convince this bomb of your argument. Right, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Like, teaching it phenomenology and, and like, uh, <laughs> and Cartesian doubt, you know, like, I think, therefore I am, or, or do I? Yeah, what is real? <laughs> yeah. It's so weird, too, that the, the that idea comes from their boss, who is dead and in a freezer, but also is, like, hooked up to a radio, and oh. so they... When they really get in trouble, they go talk to him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that also made me think of like it as sort of a commentary. You know, it's like uh, we can't make any decision before we consult the frozen zombie that we have on the board. He's going to give us the right the right answer. Yeah. Um, And having like him be him be victimized and, and, and essentially killed by a um by so this malfunction you know this like thing that goes wrong and it, it sets it up really well in the beginning when they uh get their message from uh from earth and they're basically like refusing to like you know sorry budget means that we can't fix your thing or whatever so like it's the, the neglect that has led to this situation in the first <laughs> place and so having like their boss you know uh, Doolittle's got to take over, but you know, a well-named character, like he doesn't really care about any of this stuff. And he himself is just a sort of a hippie who God knows how he ended up in space uh, doing this instead of surfing. So yeah, it's just like, I don't know, the, like the fallibility of the characters is like a 180 degree turn from the super capable men and women of uh, of the Federation in the 24th century. But yet, oh, yeah, it, it makes them it, like really endearing though as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, they all have 
I, I was thinking about this too when you mentioned Star Wars. Like in Star Wars, everyone looks like they all have like very specific '70s haircuts, which yeah, like yeah. dates it somehow, but also it's timeless in a weird way. But um, like it's even more specific in this movie because all all of the the whole crew looks like you know California college students in right. the '60s yeah. and '70s or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that the guy's like, a... you know, he's <laughs> the guy's like clipping his mustache and it's like, you gotta like, it's very, uh, you have to very meticulously maintain this shaggy sort of look. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it really adds a certain, um, specificness to the vibe of the movie for sure. You know, it's a student the... film when you're watching it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, although it's for being a student film, I think that it is uh, very capably pulled off. Um, there's a couple, you get that thing where there's like a TV level of effects or like verisimilitude where you're like, okay, that's good enough for TV. And so when you see the, um, Captain Picard walk down the corridors of the enterprise, like there's stuff's kind of shiny, the carpet's clean, but you're like, but this isn't like a movie. Like it would be lit different. There would be you know, an exponentially higher amount of gewgaws and detail and stuff like that. And this is like, this doesn't necessarily like reach up to feature film, but it is all pretty consistent for the cardboard or whatever it is that they had. Uh, And there's a lot of like skill, I think, uh, on the screen in terms of um, the staging, but also uh, like the effects, the whole sequence, Mm -hmm. you know, they did the whole sequence with the elevator, so John Carpenter could like show off that he understands how to shoot force perspective, you know, and to make it look like a guy's uh, sometimes he's hanging from a thing. Sometimes they must have had him actually hanging from a thing because I don't know how they would fake that otherwise. But, you know, you're shooting on his side. And so it looks like he's hanging down a shaft, but he's just laying on the ground and then having them switch it around like there's a lot of skill. Like, I hope he got an A. Yeah, that that part was pretty impressive. Yeah. I would I definitely agree. <laughs> then he climbs up into the elevator and then the Looney Tunes start stuff comes again. <laughs> he's, he's pushing all the buttons and he picks up the phone. And it's like, oh, sorry, this phone is out of order. Please call somebody and tell them. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, when I say it feels like a student film, like I, I don't even mean because it like feels cheap. It's just like the specific circumstances, you know, like the guys yeah. look in the way they do or, you know, even because some of it is like like the budget but it works in this you know what it feels like and i know there's a movie that neither of us were like kind of hot on but it's a thing i sort of liked about it was it reminded me of high life a little bit where oh okay yeah like part of in that movie it's like it doesn't really matter if this like really looks like a spaceship you know what i mean and when they jump into space they just kind of fall and it's like that actually that actually kind of adds to it a little bit it was like like that's not really what's important and it's kind of i don't know it's kind of unique i guess so i, yeah. I kind of like it it feels I have like to... not ashamed of being cheap or not not cheap but not like full realism you know that's the, that's the aim yeah and who's to say what realism is on a spaceship in the future you know a lot <laughs> yeah, i might have to watch i might have to watch high life again because i remember when i watched high life i was unimpressed mostly by a lot of the sets where it was just clear that we're, we're just shooting this in an office building, but it's supposed to be like decks on a ship. Yeah. But then I agree. Yeah. In that time I've ended up, <laughs> it's a long story, but I've ended up watching a lot of, uh, uh, fairy videos on YouTube. There's this channel where this guy takes, uh, he's Japanese and he takes fairies from place to place 
Uh, there's a okay. lot of ferry travel. And I don't mean like ferries like across the, the bay. Like there's like 36-hour ferry travel uh, from, from city to city or island to island. And th- so those Whoa. are ships. And a lot of those ships, you know, if you're not looking out a window, just look like you're in an office building. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe High Life had uh, made the mistake of having a little too much verisimilitude <laughs> in that they right? should have tried to look a little more uh, like an alien ship or, or, a, or a spaceship or something like that. I remember when I took a ferry, I got that feeling, too, because you had the hum of the ship and um, or even that's something I noticed watching like one of the recent episodes of um, Strange New Worlds is they do have like the real big shiny chrome deck and sick band stuff. But like when you're in like Spock's quarters, it actually captures like the TNG era, like feeling of like you're just in like a nice hotel room. Oh, sure, sure. That's so I don't know. That's something I like. Well, it's like it doesn't feel f- totally futuristic or like you're on a fancy sleek ship. It's like, no, this is like supposed to be a comfortable kind of area to hang out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I don't know. I I think I heard that this was partially based or at least the, the kernel of the idea for the story came from. Uh, a Ray Bradbury short story from the Illustrated Man collection called Kaleidoscope. And the only real connection that I think of is, or that I know is like, it's the the way they, it, it ends. Uh, in the ending, it's uh, an astronaut is sort of like blown out of his rocket when it, his rocket explodes. And he, uh, I'm not sure what happens in the story, but I think it's like kind of a fatalistic story. And so he hopes that he can it do something good in the last moments of his life. And so he burns up in the atmosphere, but like a, a kid like sees him and thinks he's a shooting star and, and makes a wish and decides that the kid wants to be an astronaut or something like that. So it's oh. like this really, it's this really like grim kind of like, okay, kind of idea, which I think they preserve at least the spirit of that. But then of course put a, a good amount of like seventies stoner whimsy into it too. Uh-huh. It's sort of like, that's why I feel like it, it does like, have a point maybe because it is kind of like it does feel like it expresses kind of a same sort of feeling that a lot of john carpenter movies have though it depending on which ones but like this one it sort of have the sort of feeling of like yeah like your job sucks you know you gotta you don't have the budget <laughs> to fix the thing that killed this guy you know you can't really talk to your boss it's like and it's probably going to kill you. You're going to die someday. But it's like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to surf. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. Like, that's that's how I'm going to I'm going to cope, you know. And for John Carpenter, it's well, now he has a lot of money. So yeah. I'm sure he yeah. likes that. But he now that's sort of his attitude is like, I'm not going to work. I want to play Xbox. <laughs> Do, Dark Star podcast. Do it, John Carpenter. <laughs> whoa yeah <laughs> get this thing made well i mean if they'll turn um it, the man who fell to earth we have if we had a patreon eh, we never get anybody to, to a patreon but if we had a patreon we would definitely be watching the david bowie movie the man who fell to earth and then i would put a gun to your head and make you watch uh the paramount plus uh series the man who fell to earth and we were talking about that the fact that they would even reach into the like sticky bottom of the 70s sci-fi toy box to get the man who fell to earth why not remake Dark Star? You know, why not give it a new twist? You know, we are more open to uh, the criticism of of the government, our military, of militarized science and the corporatizing mm-hmm. of space and blowing up planets that aren't going in the direction that you want them to. So time to get rid of them. Um, I think that you could definitely make something out of that. Now, I'm not saying like make three seasons on Netflix. Out of that, <laughs> no, but, but a miniseries or something. Sure. They could definitely 
convince John Carpenter to quote unquote produce it. Hey, I'll do the. You can have it if I can do the music. That'll be his, his deal. Yeah, because that was like the Halloween thing too, right? Like his name's kind of on it, but he didn't. Really yeah, and he do does anything. the music for it too. Oh yeah, yeah, and he did the music. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, yeah. Uh, if you let my band uh, play at it, <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, man, all right, <laughs> and uh, and uh, five thousand dollars in uh, Xbox bucks. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> deal. Well, have my guy call call your guy. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, this is, of course, uh, Aliens, and uh, Dan O'Bannon wasn't involved in that one other than his ideas, of course, uh, leading to its creation. But they play the knife game in this like they do in Aliens. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was, uh... well, yeah, it does sort of feel like a little bit like, well, if people didn't really like, appreciate this stuff in this movie, like, I can still do it, you know. <laughs> what is that called? Is it like was something Wabba Jack or what's what's that game called? Oh, the knife game? Yeah. It's got something, something know. Jack. No, I don't know. I just thought it was the knife game. I don't know. Uh, smack, slap, Jack, smack, Jack. Five finger fillet. That's what they call it in uh, Red Dead Redemption. But I don't. That's I'd not be canon. really bad at it. <laughs> I'm just sampling it right now, and I'm like, nope, couldn't do it. <laughs> I wonder if that itself is a reference to Knife in the Water because um, that's in Roman Polanski's Knife in the Water. Oh, I had no, no, I had no idea. Not everything. I, look, I know we're on the show backtracking, but I suppose not everything that happens in a movie is a reference to something else. But if you see a baby carriage going down some steps, it is definitely Battleship Potemkin, the Odessa <laughs> step sequence. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, it's like sometimes you don't even realize it, too, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, there are, um, I think TV Tropes has a good page of like literally like 50 different examples, not just in film and TV and cartoons and, you know, anime. There's that, um, it's still going on, I guess, but the whole um, cartoon movement started by like Ren and Stimpy about like cartoons are also kind of for adults. And so they're going to reference like a Kramer versus Kramer or something like that. <laughs> there's just uh-huh. like, no way, a, there's no way a kid has any shot at it, but some stoned adult, you know, on uh, watching it on Adult Swim's like, oh yeah, I get it. Oh yeah, that's, I mean, that's the whole, it's like that's, a whole network now. <laughs> that's kind of, yeah. Well, maybe that John Carpenter isn't totally that, but I think that his stuff is that a little bit. Oh, because he's and like, certainly, he's a little highbrow, but he's not, he's lowbrow. It's, you know, that's a great question. And maybe as we uh, continue to talk about his films on the show, uh, we can try to answer that eventually. I don't think we have to do it now, but I was thinking about that. I don't, he's, I don't think that he would want to be described as highbrow. And I definitely mm-hmm. think that he is trying to reinvent the films and entertainments of his youth. Like this you know, forget even uh, 2001 for a second. Like this is basically just a send up of films like Forbidden Planet, only less money. You know, Forbidden right, Planet yeah. had a had a great budget, but there were like a ton of crappy 50s sci-fi movies where it's just a bunch of assholes, you know, in a rocket and they're doing something or other, and they seem to really care about what they're doing, as opposed to the guys in Dark Star who are like, uh, all I want to do is just like smoke in my room. It's so boring. <laughs> It's like he put, so like, it, it put himself into those movies. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so I don't know if he would describe it as lowbrow, but I think he would definitely be like, well, this isn't, you know, I don't, I don't take it as seriously as those movies clearly take themselves. Yeah. Yeah, but he, you can tell he does a little bit, you know. 
Oh yeah. Um, that I think that is might be true a little bit. It's funny, like because when I think about a lot of the leads in a lot of his movies, it feels like he cast the coolest guy he could think of at the time. Yeah. And usually it's Kurt Russell, but you know, sometimes yeah. it's like ah, Roddy Piper, and and I feel like that could be you could kind of see it as like he's kind of doing movies he was influenced by and like but he put like i don't know maybe that's too just because it's like if if you think about the those movies from that time like he's putting in like a john wayne type character or something like that someone who is also like his version of like the really cool guy in like those old in like old 50s movies right and his character is always he's a cool guy but he's also kind of like philosophical and kind of uh, above what what's going on, right? And so yeah. he's he isn't just a a meathead, uh, but he's not an defeat intellectual either. Like he's a guy who has his own sort of like thoughtful code. It's a very Western sort of thing, and it's just really funny that he's never really actually made like a Western. Um, Assault on Precinct Thirteen is Rio Bravo, as you and I both know. Mm-hmm. Um, but and that's close. Um, you know, Big Trouble in Little China was originally supposed to be a Western, but then got turned into Big Trouble in Little China. That's probably the closest that I think he's got to maybe a Western. And then even in that, he can kind of laugh at himself because he casts his boy, Kurt Russell, in it. And the character is a complete like buffoon and kind of send up of that character who's like got a code. He's talking about the Pork Chop Express and, you know, he's completely full of himself and just <laughs> completely lost the entire movie. So I like the fact that like he does he likes this possibly now problematic idea of a male American hero. But also, I think he's absolutely willing to to shoot it up. And he's doing that in this and that, you know, I talked about like you know, the sci-fi 50s uh, hero, the white heroes, the Leslie Nielsen's, you know, of cinema. Uh, In this film, intellectualism is not a boon to anyone. Uh, Being good at fixing things is really bad for Talby. Uh, He gets shot into space. Uh, Mm -hmm. Giving, making your bomb smart is a bad idea because it's going to talk itself into blowing up. You know, the commander (laughs) for all of his smarts ends up in a frozen in an ashes to ashes video in the basement. You know, it's like, it, 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 being prepared, being capable is no is no help in this universe. It's not only that, like, they made the bomb like that, too, but, like, the fact that it's, like, like, it's the opposite of Star Trek, because, like, a lot, there's a lot of episodes where they just can solve it by pure intellect and, like, talk yeah. someone down, whereas this, yeah. it's, like, it's the opposite. <laughs> like, you, you yeah. talked them into destroying you, so it's, like... Everything they did made it worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's, like... <laughs> yeah. That's that's why it's almost like then it feels like at the end, like a little maybe nihilistic or something where it's sort of like, you know, like I said, F it. I'm just going to surf, you know, like, yeah, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, this movie, I think, is almost completely forgotten except by uh, by cinephiles. But it did certainly inspire uh, many of the people who would make things that would be remembered forever. I have no idea if Gene Roddenberry saw or cared about Dark Star. I, I seriously doubt it. But I'm positive that George Lucas knew about it and cared about it. Um, you know, you think about a, a guy trapped in space and he just wants to have fun and he's wearing a jumpsuit. Uh, I think this was big, bigly influential on MST3K as well as uh, as well as Silent oh, Running was sure. in uh, the development of that. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that like I don't know if. I don't know if there's any way to get people to care about it if they don't already. It's probably only going to recede 
like Talby with the Phoenix asteroids, you know, into the distance as the years go on. But I'm glad it exists because it it certainly helped us uh, get a, a mm-hmm. lot of the things that we have now. I think there's room to convince people. One, obviously, because it's a John Carpenter movie. So, yeah, anyone who likes John Carpenter will probably ev- eventually get there. I can't remember if I've ever seen this. You'll, you'll see this, um, of course, as the years go on, the prints get worse and worse. But um, they do like midnight movies with this once in a while. And it'd probably be a really good midnight movie. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, and I, I think also I've never seen one, though. I recommended it to some people right away because I knew they liked like movies about like like uh prometheus or whatever where it's like yeah one one if you already like alien there there you go but then if you really like more of that like ai element um yeah even though it's silly like i said i think you can watch it and like take it kind of seriously and it's still cool even if it's like laughable you know so i i think there's a room to get people like like if they did do that sort of remake i think um there's people who could get into it, but they probably wouldn't do it comedic, would they? Yeah, I don't know. We have a weird relationship with comedy these days. I feel like the only way something like that would go is if it was like full on like Douglas Adams sort of tone, because they they have yeah. that. Where actually doesn't in the second book I... like the robot convinces like a ship to kill itself, right? There are a couple – I've been thinking about Douglas Adams this entire conversation and, and didn't say anything, so I'm glad you brought him up. Um, there are a couple of situations where characters talk to things. Yeah, Marvin talks uh, – uh, I think in the third book, Marvin talks a tank into killing itself. Uh, I think in this – also in the second – or in the third book – uh, you asked, uh, Zaffa Bieberbrox, uh talks a door yeah. into not opening loudly because he's trying to sneak up on somebody. And all the doors, because this is a good sci-fi ship, have been programmed to make the shh sound when they open. And he's like, <laughs> I want you to open quietly. Do not make that sound when you open. Oh. Uh, and there's another, uh, there's another scene, I think, again in the same book. So Douglas Adams is really working on a deadline. Uh, where Zaphod, I think, talks to an elevator. Elevators in his universe are psychic, so they know to be there when you need them. But that means that, like, when there's danger on a floor, elevators don't want to go there. They're scared because they know that something <laughs> bad bad is there. So he's trying to talk an elevator into going uh, to that floor. So, yeah, like, yeah, this definitely feels like that. And um, don't, you the know, only if we difference could, is I wish we could like, ask Douglas Adams what he thought about Dark Star. I bet he liked it. He probably would have liked it, like, especially the way the bomb's, like, sort of attitude. When he's like, oh, oh yeah. I don't want to hear that. That seems like something one of his characters would say. But the difference, yeah. I feel like, is, like, his books are, like, constantly cheeky. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Whereas, yeah. like, this is, like, it has both tones where it's, like, slapstick, goofy, silly. But then, like, it's also, like, trip, tripped out and, like, whoa. <laughs> this is, yeah. This is yeah. weird and heavy. Yeah. You know? I, it's not that, like, Carpenter couldn't do um, cheeky or dry. But, I mean, as an American, like, his sensibility is, is, is you know, let's have a beach ball mm-hmm. in there. Let's have, let's have Boiler just decide to start shooting <laughs> the gun in the hallways. Because uh, yeah. he's bored. My, Boiler's, my that, Boiler's like, like that kid in the back of the class that's like, if this kid gets too bored, you know, he's going to start lighting something start on fire flicking. or something. Yeah, <laughs> spit wads <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, just if they remade it, I feel like it would be hard to capture this tone. But I guess people didn't like it at the time. So maybe it's no. not a tone they're trying to capture. <laughs> and I wasn't able to get an idea of the the width of its release. Like it, it had a distributor. But I'm fairly sure it didn't 
show throughout the country. So I, I'm not sure. Maybe more information can be found in that documentary. But um, well, you know, we barely talked about the smart bomb, um, but maybe we can add some of that conversation into the discussion about our Voyager episode, uh, which we should get to right now. So let's take a break mm-hmm. for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back with more backtracking. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob Podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay. Every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the Sailor Warrior of Love and Justice, Sailor Moon. All right. Now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. The ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon, prism, power, make up a new episode. Better amidships. Study as she goes. Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers. Okay, we're back. It's time to talk about the Trek side of this equation. It's well known that the television series Star Trek Voyager never exactly lived up to its daring premise, namely a starship full of tension, ex-terrorists, and broken people. It did, though, throughout its seven-year run, make good at showing a different kind of crew than your normal Star Trek crew, one who wasn't necessarily at the top of their class in the Academy, one who didn't have the resources and manpower of the Federation's flagship, but a crew of wounded people looking for fulfillment and redemption while looking for their home, representing an islet of empathy while separated from the mainland of the Federation. And in true Star Trek style, the crew of the Voyager would do their best to redeem other beings as well, be they organic or artificial, as we see in the fifth season episode, Warhead. Back off, this thing could be dangerous. And Wednesday on an all-new Voyager, an alien bomb with a mind of its own. You're an artificial intelligence embedded in a machine of some kind. We'll take possession of the Doctor. I am programmed to destroy my target. I will complete my mission. And unless someone can disarm it, it's going to be one explosive showdown. The device is going to detonate. Everyone on board will be killed. Voyager. And it didn't occur to me until we had already watched the episode and we were knee-deep into planning this thing, but this also happens in a couple other episodes, doesn't it? Yeah, actually, I thought... Um, I thought that this was Dreadnought. I got Dreadnought, and I'm glad that we watched Warhead because I think it fits better. But this is basically also Dreadnought. Like, Belana Taurus programs a Cardassian missile to blow up, and then they encounter it later on in the Delta Quadrant, and she has to talk it out of, like, wanting to kill. That's exactly what I thought it was going to be. And then when I put it in, I actually had watched Warhead more recently uh, because I'm on, like, the seventh season of Voyager. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this it's, it's actually better that it's this one. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then there's another episode, I think called Prototype, where, which is also in the same season. So in the second season, there's Dreadnought, and then a couple episodes before, there's an episode called Prototype, where Bellana Taurus, like, finds a mannequin robot man and, like, has to repair him, but he's, like, programmed oh. to continue this war between their races uh, <laughs> of two different robots. And so she's trying to talk this, you know, AI out of, like, this quest to kill all these other robots. And it's like, boy, Voyager could really repeat a premise well, <laughs> when they wanted to. Voyager is n- just, in general, no stranger to going back to the well. So oh, yeah. 
Yeah, not surprising. Our, our, our sub-podcast where we just compare Voyager episodes with other Voyager episodes. <laughs> yeah, it would be we could do Enterprise, too, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. When it's, sure. like, insanely saturated. Yeah. Uh, this was written by Michael Taylor and Kenneth Biller, two um, stalwarts of, uh, you know, this entire era of Trek, but certainly Voyager. And the story came from Brandon Braga. And the thing about Brandon Braga is this. If I ever met Brandon Braga... I would flip a coin. And if it was heads, I'd kick him in the balls. And if it was <laughs> tails, I would buy him a drink because we owe him so much. And I'm sure that he's probably a totally fine guy if you just meet and talk to him. But he's also somebody who I think in the great tradition of, let's say, creative people, you know, John Carpenter, it, he's old now, sure. But you know, Ridley Scott's making movies still. Like, John Carpenter could make movies still. But I think he has reached a point where he's like, I've said a lot. One of the things I don't like is having to wrestle with idiots that don't know anything about storytelling and filmmaking to get things into my movies. So I'm just going to play Xbox and make music. I don't want to make the movies anymore. Right. And yes, that happens to a lot of creative people. Brandon Braga, a long time ago, said to himself... I'm a creative person, but I'm also, I want to do this for a living. And so I will make whatever compromise I need to. I will, you know, I will do the same premise in in three years because who's going to pay attention? Like, I think there is an element to what he does. And about this episode, he said that this is based on uh, the end of the Cold War and the idea that, you know, when the Soviet Union fell, there were a lot of missiles and nuclear missiles, ordnance, bombs, things that were out there that sort of could have made their way into um, the wrong hands. And so this is that. And I don't disagree that that is possibly true, but this is also Dark Star. <laughs> like, this is just Dark Star, right? Like, they're, they're they're trying to tell a bomb to not fulfill its mission. Oh. And all it wants to do is fulfill its mission. Like, it, that's exactly what it is. Now, I don't know if he wouldn't say that because he doesn't want to feel, seem like he's unoriginal. But, dude, you've written, like, hundreds of TV episodes, and we've done half of them. So, like, I know, what, I know what you, where you got this from. Okay, so you're you're very confident. I wasn't sure. Um, it makes sense now thinking about how it's kind of a forgotten movie. So like, maybe sort of felt like no one will notice <laughs> if if that's really what he did. I guess I don't know how old he is. I'm sure he's probably a little bit older than me. But if he, you know, saw this, you know, on uh, UHF TV late at night like I did, I and then he became a TV writer. It's got to be in his in his rolodex somewhere yeah i mean that's fine too like they def it's with a lot of episodes where i think they did a good job of like adapting it and making it fit into the star trek sort of universe and sort of like give it yeah. their you know it's not it, nihilistic sort of ending yeah. you know yeah well it would never be but like having an artificial uh ai character um is, is a gimme for them, right? They're like, oh, okay, obviously then we make, you know, we put uh, the doctor at the center of this. One of the reasons that I think that this probably started with a riff on Dark Star is that it doesn't develop at all. You know, the bomb is only, <laughs> the bomb has, uh, you know, two, three minutes of screen time maybe in Dark Star, but it leaves an impression. Uh, the character of the bomb or the torpedo that never gets a name in this uh, <laughs> is acted by Robert Picardo. And it's one of those chances. He's, you know, Voyager's Brent Spiner. We always want to give Robert Picardo more to do. But he, he never has any levels and he never goes anywhere. He's just yelling at everybody the entire time. 
And then at the very end, he says, oh, okay, I guess we did get the radio message and it turns out it's, we're not supposed to do this. And so I'm going to sacrifice myself. And there is no development. Like even the torpedo in, Deve- in Dreadnought has more development. You know, the, I don't mm. know about the mannequin robot in prototype, but, and so like, if you were going to take an idea, you'd want to fit it into your universe and give it more body. And I think for this, I don't know where they, it's late in the season, maybe they're saving money, but they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll have, you know, Bob just do some stuff and then that's it. And I wish that the bomb had had more of a character because even the short little arc of the bomb going from a fussy bomb that wants to do his job to discovering philosophy and then megalomania and then killing everybody, that's a pretty good arc (laughs) for the short amount of time that he spends on screen. Yeah, because I... I felt like it had all the pieces to it. Maybe they could have been fleshed out more because it did have like the moments where he's unsure. He has sort of like a crisis of faith where he's like, should I go through with this? But it's pretty it's all pretty brief. But I think all the I don't know, it was it was fine for me when I watched it casually. You know, I was sort of like just thought the concept was so wild, like because I watched it actually before. Like, like I said, in my rewatch before we got to this, so I wasn't even thinking about the comparison and I, and I hadn't, I, I hadn't recalled like a, a specific, like it was so specific to me that it was like the bomb was having a personal crisis, you know, that, that was what stood out to me. So like, I, and even though it was very brief, like it was really memorable to me, like the idea of a bomb being Hmm. like. (laughs) <laughs> maybe it's a little it's a little galaxy brain or whatever but i was just thinking like <laughs> whoa like it's a bomb but it's like what if i'm not a bomb <laughs> uh, and i just thought that was that was so i was laughing for sure it's a little silly but that's what i love about star trek like i said is that they can take these very goofy things and treat them very seriously and like convince me that it it's something to like emotionally care about it, so that it is, worked for me. <laughs> that is true. I just I, I wish that they had allowed that to reach into the characters of the show more, like the lives of our characters. Because there's a lot going on in this episode. You know, there is um they open they bookend it with um Harry, right? With Harry um being on the night shift and being in control. And the entire time there's kind of a a, a concern, kind of a runner about his confidence in his um, command abilities, or at least the responsibility of me. He's glib about making decisions, and then he realizes, oh, I could make a decision where we let a missile on board that <laughs> takes everybody hostage and wants to start a war. Um, but in true Voyager fashion, or maybe just in Star Trek fashion, like, it doesn't really lead anywhere. Everything's fine by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, taking the doctor, and it makes sense to have Robert Picardo play the missile, but like taking the doctor and completely eliminating like his viewpoint from the episode because he's taken over for the entire thing means that you've kind of cut, you know, another character out of it. Taurus is there and she's literally done this before, but like, we don't really reference that. Mm. And, and so like, how does she, she's there to encourage Harry, but how does she really feel about it? Like if she was a voice saying, you know, she was the naysayer saying, no, we need to like, I've got this way to beam it off the ship. We can blow it up. We can kill it. And Harry's trying to save it or the doctor's trying to save it because it's a real, you know, life. The fact that it just sort of blows itself up at the end is, I don't know, it's just, it's a little too clean for me. I think, um, I think what could have made it work a little bit better is if, because you're talking about how he's like mostly just screaming at him the whole time. Because a lot of Star Trek episodes will just be like, 
they'll like kind of drop the dilemma on you right away and then the whole episode is kind of like the character that is having to make the choices like just like talking to different people and like they raise the stakes a little bit but overall like you sort of just get like oh they kind of changed their way of thinking because they've got everyone's different perspective and i think maybe if they had a scene like that where you know first the bomb is hostile and takes them over but then like maybe there's some uncertainty about the stand down order and maybe you had some moments where he's like talking you know just actually talking to them not screaming you know and then yeah. like the other bombs show up, so he's like, I don't know, I guess I should go with them. But then he doesn't, you know, that maybe that could have made it better. Like just more Yeah. Give the bombs some not shouty times. Yeah. Have you seen the movie Crimson Tide? I, I have not, no. Oh, okay. Um you should. Uh it's a we were talking about Ridley Scott before. It's a Tony Scott film, but it's it's really good. And it involves a situation similar to this. You know, it's about a US nuclear submarine. And the submarine itself is kind of the warhead. You know, there's um, there's the threat of a of a conflict of a war, and they receive an order to get ready to shoot. You know, their nuclear missiles, which will essentially begin World War Three, no matter what happens. And then they lose their ability to communicate, and so it they can't confirm the order. And the captain is ready to follow his orders and do what he has to do. It's what he's trained for. And the XO played by Denzel Washington is like, no, no, I'm the voice of reason. Like we don't, we could make the conflict worse if we do this. Uh, And so it becomes a conflict between them. And it's just a real, you know, sweaty submarine, you know, uh, filled with Mm -hmm. testosterone type film. Sounds Um, great. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of this. And I don't know if it's because that came out in 95 and they didn't want to be seen to do a Crimson Tide or if they felt like Crimson Tide, yes, is military fiction, but that's not what we do. We're Star Trek. The What you're describing, the whole, oh my God, so now I've got reasonable doubt that this isn't the, the, the right order, but uh, but I, but maybe that's a faked order. You know, maybe I'm questioning it. All of that takes about, you know, three, four minutes of screen time before... Seven is hurt, and then in true Trek fashion, you know, it, Harry uses you know empathy. He he, um, you know, he emphasizes to to the bomb that it's like this is the kind of hurt that I'm talking about here. Like you, it, these these people aren't statistics; they're not uh, uh, just numbers. Like you, you will be hurting people like this, and kind of gets through to him that way. But that turn is like that. That fourth act is like so quick. Yeah. That, yeah. I wish that it could have been longer because that's that's what you think of when you think about like Star Trek usually. And Voyager episodes, I think, can get into a and then storytelling kind of situation mm-hmm. where it's like and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. I think what unlocked Voyager for me, I think I've said this before, but like my favorite episodes on this rewatch I've been on are like ones that are more similar to like Time Cop that are like quote unquote like kind of dumb action movies and less of like the <laughs> yeah. thinky ones. But yeah. but they but they also will still have a little bit of the thinky in there. And that's kind of how this was. Cause it, it is, like I said, it's so silly. Like it's, it's like, what if a, what if a nuclear warhead was like a guy, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. And yeah. so that's, I think that was enough for me. And the fact that it just had a little bit of like morality and like empathy, I was like, it's like watches. Yeah. It's like watching like a good Van Damme movie where it's like, it's not the main <laughs> focus, but there's some of that in there. And, all the actors are really good, so it, it convinced me. You know, when he when he made his heroic sacrifice in the end, I was like, "Yeah, bomb guy." I don't know. All his right, name. I was well, rooting yeah. for him. <laughs> yeah, but he kills like thirty two other bombs that 
you know, we're all potentially uh, aware AIs as well. But whatever. <laughs> Some, you know. This, this is my thing about, like, Voyager often, it sets up the same kind of moral dilemmas that you'd expect from Star Trek. But either because they have a different view or they don't know what they're doing or often Trek's, when Trek covers a moral uh, ground, covers moral territory, like, it covers it well. And so if you go back to it, there's nothing to do but to try and make a different choice. And mm-hmm. it doesn't always fly. And I think that if, you know, I mentioned their premise before, you know, I like Janeway as a character, but I think if we saw Janeway, you know, break more rules and do things more desperately because of their circumstances, then you could um, exploit the the differences in their behavior with the values that they're supposed to hold. And right now, um, people are very, um, very aware of their love of Star Trek as a utopia, you know, as these people are perfect, they can't make any bad decisions or my life doesn't mean anything is what I think that it, how it feels sometimes. And I think that's too bad because that's like the new Galaxy Brain 3000 version of we can't have any conflict between these characters, Gene Roddenberry style, is that we can't let our Star Trek characters do anything bad ever because that's how you get interesting stories you know and that's how you redeem characters and that's how characters show who they are and i like the fact that everybody did the right thing in this episode for the most part but i could see other scenarios where things got a little messy or at least like that scenario i said before where torres is like look i don't care this thing's trying to kill us so let's kill it Uh and maybe you've got harry like standing in trying to to save it because you know he feels responsible for for what they've done to this thing. When you think about it, this bomb has a completely different arc, uh, opposite arc than the Dark Star bomb. Dark Star bomb just wants to do its job. And then these humans like explain existence to it. And it's like, interesting, interesting. And it gets really dangerous. And in this, like this bomb, you know, also just wants to do its job. But then they like talk it into like self-sacrifice and like, and, and, and teach it empathy. And it's like, oh no, everything's connected. And I have to try to prevent the most amount of casualties as I can. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think the show does have, it does kind of go back and forth of like, sometimes they'll be like, we can't violate our morals. And then other times it's like, they'll do it right away. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and they'll be like, as long well, as nobody's looking. And they'll yeah. say like, oh yeah, we got to like do what we can to survive out here. But then other episodes are like, we can't do that to survive out here. That's against our morals. Yeah, and yeah. I, I can accept that. I think I think they should, uh, you know, they just sh- should have had given the more of an opportunity to present that as like them in conflict with their own values. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's that's where I do sort of agree with the people who are like, oh, Star- Starfleet officers can't act this way. Not fully, but I think the idea that there should at least be some baseline acknowledgement of it. You know what I mean? As opposed to like, I don't know. Some of the some of the new, newer Trek stuff is like people are just like mean and awful, and there's like rarely a check for it. You know, it's just like oh, that's just how people act. You know. Um, yeah. I don't know. I I do think that we we get the situation where there's in the middle of the episode that um, the shady like arms dealer character comes in, and he's like, oh, I can yeah, I'll take this off your hands, no problem. Uh, but then Janeway's like, but okay, but what are you going to do with it? And he's like, oh, there's a lot of things you can do with it. Uh, and also you can blow things up. And she's like, okay, actually, you know what? We're good. Uh, we don't need your help. Uh, and then, of course, that's solved for them because he immediately tries to attack them and then gets blown up for his trouble. 
Um, which is all well and good. But even at that point, Janeway's like, okay, that sucked. And then the next time the bomb threatens them, she's like, you know what? I'm calling your bluff. Go ahead and blow us up because maybe, you know, we'll all die, but you won't be able to, to wreck any more uh, destruction, you know, in the universe. And that's kind of like, that's a real Starfleet thing. That's a very Starfleet thing. I feel like, um, and may, maybe this is the case in like Deep Space Nine, like maybe they're like kind of having their cake and eat it too. But I feel like they they will emphasize more like they'll have characters make bad choices. And then like at the end of the episode, I think of the ending of like the blood oath or in the pale moonlight where they kind of end and they're like man that was really messed up we did that whereas like voyager they sometimes do it but sometimes they do it and they don't really reference it as it's just sort of like they take it it's like a matter of fact like yeah that's just like a thing they did because they were they're stranded out here so you gotta do what you gotta do i don't know i just feel like they they have kind of a a two-faced sort of a morality i guess i don't know yeah like why not have harry like actually screw something up like i think it's fine for him to to make a choice even a choice that like by the book because he does quote the book to uh to taurus at one point like making a choice that is by the book but lacks any of the perspective the seasoning of a commander and makes everything worse and then you know they fix it and because they're star trek people it's fine but at the end chakotay is kind of like now see harry this is like what we're talking about there's a difference between knowing you know what the book says and reading a situation when you're in it and um and instead <laughs> harry's just like back in the chair at the end and he's like yeah everything's great no, i'm harry kim yeah, it reminds me like i was explaining so i have a one friend where sometimes uh, like we'll be talking and i'll be like explaining an episode to him and he's like a little skeptical about like most non-original Star Trek stuff. Not, not that he's really watched much of it, but I, I was explaining this and I explained, I was like, so yeah, they just find this thing down on the planet and then they bring it aboard. And he's like, God, he's like these Starfleet people would of course fall for that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and like, just, he just gets this perspective of me. Like maybe it's cause I started by, they brought a bomb on the ship, you know, but like, yeah, that feels like a Star Trek kind of thing where it's like they could have maybe, you know, had been like, maybe there's another way to do this or something. You know? <laughs> the bo- yeah, but it's talking to them like the doctor's having a conversation with it and everything. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Everything's cool. Don't worry. That could have added some drama to the beginning of like, well, we want to figure out what this is before we bring it up. And then the doctor's like, why would you just bring it up? You know, he's he's a real person. I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm overthinking it a little bit. Which is an interesting perspective. Like, we don't, you know, Star Trek doesn't really go too deep into how they feel about AI. You know, we know we have the Doctor. You know, we have a character like Data. And we love those characters and and we're cool with that. But this is an episode that sort of brings up the idea of... um, Is, you know, do, do they believe that this thing is alive? The Doctor clearly does. And you think that it, next it would go to Janeway. Like, does she get to make a decision about if they respect this thing's rights or not? Is there something on the books with Starfleet for artificial intelligence? Do they have to treat this? Because they immediately just begin treating it um, like it's alive, which I commend them for. But yeah, I wonder just about precedence in this case. Speaking of precedence, I have a question. So Tom Paris wants to replicate uh, some food for his wife and get her a little rose and some some candy or something for their anniversary. And I was thinking about the rose that he makes and what we do with flowers, right? You, you have a flower, you enjoy its beauty as a, as a, while it lasts. 
then it uh, dries up and you, you throw it away or something. Or maybe you don't. Maybe <laughs> maybe like when I get flowers, uh, they just sit out for weeks uh, until they dry up. There must be very specific rules, not only about what you can make in the replicator, but what you have to put back into the replicator. Like they have rations for what comes out, but they should have mm-hmm. rations for like how much they're putting back in when they're done. They probably and do. Have, they probably do. And have that number be slightly less small than what you take out, right? Especially on a ship that is running on, you know, lower resources like the Voyager. Because let's say that every day Tom Paris makes a rose for his wife. Well, you know, usually you throw those roses away. Sometimes you're a little busy because you're a department head. And like petals of the rose maybe fall behind the dresser. At what point do you pull the dresser back and there's just like a thousand dried rose petals back there because you can just make as many roses as you want. You know what I mean? Like what's the conservation of energy? What's the conservation of mass in their, uh, in their, in their rationing, you know, like what, how does, how does that work? The fact that you could make anything you want. Um, do they, do they value the things that they have? Right. Well, I would imagine that they probably have a stipend for like what they're able to keep, you know, like, to take out and so maybe yeah. it's like it is like you've, you've created like x amount of calories of energy of objects but you're you haven't paid in this much so where where is this stuff like obviously we subtract all the poop that you that you make from the food but like you you made like you made all those buckets of pork rinds you didn't bring the is your uh quarters just full of tupperware containers like we need those back those are energy too what do they do with the poop by the way do they turn that back into energy well, in the 32nd that? century, they turned them into apples. We know that. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the, that's that's, that's got to be, I bet you flush the toilet and it, it de-atomizes your We need, like, a, someone to do a J.K. Rowling-style tweet to explain this. Yeah. Or they just drop some <laughs> random lore on you. <laughs> like, please, we did not need to know. You don't want that job. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm on reverse replicator duty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's about it. Uh, I got a little scared when they talked about the bombs crossing a threshold, but then I realized uh, we're not in the second Ah. season, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is a fun episode. I like seeing Robert Picardo do something goofy. It always works for me. Yeah. Yeah, I um I I generally I do like a doctor episode generally, although I think that some of um his episodes are thought of as some of the worst episodes. <laughs> not not all of them. Some That's of them are the best ones. So strange because he It's kind of feast or famine with doctor episodes. Well, from my from my perspective, he's far and away the best character on the show. Yeah. So it's funny that his episodes are considered that because I think any episode i've seen where you get the more of a chance to hang out with the doctor is like yeah, so much I mean, better for every blink of an eye or tinker tailor tenor spy there's a, a a darkling or a um what's the beowulf one <laughs> some people like the beowulf one. Uh, i don't like the beowulf, I like one. The beowulf one he he gets it on he gets nasty <laughs> yeah that's right yeah, yeah. um yeah, good stuff. It, that's the that's the problem. It's like he's got to do all the data beats all over again. So they're like, let's go through the data beats really fast, and then he yeah. can do things like we're going to do a Pygmalion with uh, with seven of nine. That's fun. Huh. Yeah, that's true. 
That's yeah. That's the only downfall. That's the weak point of uh, Deep Space Nine is it doesn't really have a data. <laughs> like to I guess do... that, well, it's got it's got Odo, but it's not really the same thing though. They come up with all a bunch of clever ways, like they have the mirror universe and the holodeck yeah. programs and stuff. But like you definitely get more Buck Wild with Data and the Doctor than like you do Odo. You know, like okay, he's yeah. Curzon now. Not that big a deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or he meets uh, he meets um, another changeling, and they're kind of like, "Are we going out? Like, is this like a <laughs> a, a gay metaphor, or are, are we still not allowed to do that? No, I don't think we're allowed to do that. Yeah, still, no, so. no. Well, um, bombs are dangerous technology, and something that makes Trek Trek is the technology of the future. It can facilitate what the characters are doing just as often. It can blow them all up. So on every show, we randomly pick from a list of Star Trek technologies. We add what we get to the non-Trek media, and we subtract it from the Trek episode to see how each will be different. We call this our technological exchange, and here is the list of technologies that we choose from. We've got phasers, holodecks, tricorders, transporters, warp drives, replicators, communicators, shields, advanced medical technology, and androids. And if I roll on my random number selecting technology, the number I get is number nine. Number nine, uh, we have advanced medical technology, Mm. which funnily enough, I was actually, I was wondering if this would come up because I think there are two fairly good applications for this. Uh, But we'll start, of course, with Dark Star. If the world of Dark Star, which is the future, it's the 23rd century, I believe, uh, if they had Star Trek, uh, Starfleet advanced medical technology, how would it be different? Well, they almost do. They've got the, like, they, they got this dead guy who they can talk to. That's, they don't have that in Star Trek, actually, where you don't talk to any dead people. Not generally. That's a little too creepy for Star <laughs> Trek. Uh, but maybe that guy would never have been in that situation because you just put a dermal regenerator on him or something and he's... Uh, He's back up and running, so he's he's the captain. Yeah, I forgot exactly what happened to him. Like, it did, like a spring in a seat shot up and flung him into space or something. What happened? Um, I think like there was like a fuse that blew out or something and oh, just burned okay. him or killed him because they haven't fixed it. Because Pinback <laughs> leans in at one point during during the log and is like, "Oh yeah, Pinback is upset that he has to sit in the seat next to the guy that died." Still. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to sit there. What we we did not cover Pinback enough. Uh, Pinback, played by Dan O'Bannon, uh, who of course would go on to write Alien and many other things. And at one point, like they do, like a maybe it's like a maybe it's like a high life thing. <laughs> they do a, like a series of logs where he's like I recording like his yeah. his diaries, and we find out that he's not even like Pinback. He's some other guy. Yeah, he like. Did he like accidentally stow away or something? Like, he, yeah, he got the guy's uniform. So. It that that's a very like Douglas Adams thing, or maybe a Harry Harrison thing. You know, the whole de- dehumanizing nature of like this work that he's he's literally not even that guy, and it doesn't matter. Like everybody's just yeah, whatever, just just do the thing. That's like apparently I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. The name that he gives was actually uh, one of their uh, screenwriting teachers at USC who uh, went on to um, write books about screenwriting. Oh, that's nice. a little Easter egg there. Yeah, I like that that whole his whole log uh, thing. I I was sort of thinking it was gonna like he was gonna like I don't know double cross them or something. Yeah. So yeah, I you mentioned this before, and and it's it is one of the reasons that I like it. The fact that it it's kind of like vignettes, you know, and that's part of that is it being made by a filmmaker who isn't necessarily going to go on to be known for his screenwriting, but he is trying to paint 
uh, little pictures of these men, even if the uh, story doesn't flow together perfectly. So I think in a massaged script, that would matter more and it would connect back to something. But instead, it just sort of paints a picture of this kind of sad man who's wearing somebody else's underwear because this is all this is all that he can do like in this this world where they're trapped in space and they're just right. doing this awful job but it's yeah it's okay that it doesn't kind of loop back and, and really connect to anything yeah i mean you can at least say like for this short movie like all like most of the characters are pretty distinct and like stand out and like you do yeah. get a good sense of all the characters in it and so i it's pretty effective in that sense and they all get their little um abbreviated arcs except maybe i don't boiler doesn't really do much but um but uh, Doolittle gets to surf again, and Talby gets to get gets rewarded to travel with the uh, Phoenix asteroids. Yeah. And... <laughs> so, like, if they had advanced medical technology, they would definitely probably understand better the the beach ball alien. It's another sort of cynical look at space in that they find this alien creature. We get the idea that they haven't seen a lot of aliens, and it just turns out to be this annoying beach ball that like won't won't take orders, and they've got it locked in a room. Um, they they would definitely like know it better. Like they wouldn't be trying to feed it stuff that it doesn't want. Right. Yeah. They they could scan it and be like, oh, I detect it. I don't know. They could figure out how to talk to it. Maybe. Yeah. Um, give it. Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't like the mouse toy. Give it uh, the, the other toy. <laughs> scan the its toy preferences. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah, the captain would be alive and hopefully, um, you know, capable and doing his job. I wonder, like, you don't get a – I was trying to figure out, like, what the role of everybody is. Because this is post-Star Trek, so they probably think about it in terms of a commander, an XO, um, a navigator. You've got a navigator. You've got a bombardier. Say Boiler's probably like the – or actually, no, um, Pinbacker's the, the bombardier. Um, so, like, what would Doolittle's role be then if he didn't have to command uh, because the commander is gone? Like, would he have made more progress on his musical instrument? <laughs> Which was awesome, by the way. That was yeah. great. Yeah. It's so melancholy and weird. Yeah. Yeah, definitely set a tone for sure. I think uh, if they had, like, when I was thinking about advanced medical technology, I, I was sort of thinking of, like, any, almost any area of this ship if you took some some technology from star trek it would add a great uh quality of life um to the ship and it sort of and it does make me think of like the the two types of futures they're presenting here and uh it makes me think back to when we were we were talking about like picard or whatever and or um and i was saying uh, about like SpaceX and stuff like that, how I thought maybe they were going for a metaphor of that, um, yeah. which I think would be interesting. And and I think that these both show like the ideas of these two different futures that we could possibly experience. But like, it's not just like the technology that's going to save us. It's like it's like how we choose to apply it. You know, will we? Because I'm sure in that universe they could have medical technology. You know, it's not just like like uh, unfortunate circumstances that they've gotten to. Well, we got to cram all these guys onto a ship and have them go blow up planets. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You get a sense of like, Oh, these guys are like working just like me, you know? And like the people back home probably barely give a crap about them too. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) So yeah, I don't know that 
that stands out to me. Any anything you could bring in from Star Trek, any sort of that communist utopia, even just a drop would be helpful in Dark Star. I don't I I know that I've watched at least a video, if not a full length documentary about Carpenter. And I, I see him as I, I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't really have a sense of him as a person. But if you told me that he was like a like a beach bum type guy. Um, I know that he comes from New York, but he, you know, went to school and lived in California. And if he, his whole thing was just sort of like, yeah, you know, I just, you know, I got an idea, I'll do it. But otherwise I just kind of want to take it easy. I guess I'd believe that about him. And it seems like it extends to his social commentary as well, because he is definitely getting close to ideas that would be more fleshed out in other works, you know, like Silent Running or even when Star Trek gets a little cynical, but he, he's not asking you to buy too much. And mm. even something like uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which starts with like the murder of a child, you know, he wasn't trying to make a point about, you know, satanic cults, you know, the, sa- the satanic panic in the 70s and 80s or anything like that. He's just like, I needed something to start the movie and I needed like bad guys that the good guys could shoot and you wouldn't feel bad for them. <laughs> right. and, I, and I didn't want to use zombies because it's like a real world. So it's just like, vicious you know, satanic murderers but i wasn't trying to make a point <laughs> so i think more often than not he's not trying to make a point about yeah. anything and so i wonder if th- this is the beginning of the end of him making a point or if he's trying to make a soft point or it's all just coincidence and he's like yeah these characters don't like to work because their job sucks but you know that's kind of the way jobs are sometimes well i i think it goes different ways with him because then there's you know like they live it's like it's very oh yeah it's like uh, what do you call it? It's not subtle, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, sure. I don't know. I think he... I think it depends on what he's trying to do, but I think he cares in some way or another about yeah. certain movies, even if he acts like he doesn't. And he, and They Live was his, you know, completely. Like, he he wrote it uh, under a pseudonym, but he that was his script. So that's the point where he definitely did want to say something. Yeah. Yeah, probably varies, but... Um, something, I gotta watch that again. most of those movies, something comes through, you know, like, uh, they, they always feel like they, they hit somewhere for me, even if it, I feel like he's like, I'm going, I'm trying to be just a little bit more nihilistic or something, you know? Yeah. Well, let's talk about, uh, what would happen if we took the advanced metal medical technology of Star Trek away in the episode Warhead. Now, right off the bat, this is what I was excited about, even though it's really dumb. They wouldn't be able to do a fake out where <laughs> Neelix can apparently use a tool of healing to give somebody a wound. Uh, there shouldn't be that setting, right? And then they can trick the uh, the, the the bomb, which as far as I can see, remember in the episode, never really like looks at Seven or checks her out. Like she just could have been like, oh, I'm hurt. Mm. But uh, Neelix gets really into the uh, the Hollywood stage makeup part of his skill set and gives her this uh, fake wound using advanced medical technology. That's a great one. I have a very dumb, obvious one is the doctor falls under the umbrella of advanced medical technology. There's no doctor. Yeah. yeah. So then they I just think, got well, there's like, certainly There's certainly no it. sick bay. Yeah. And, um, and there wouldn't be a doctor. So, so the Voyager finds this device on this planet and, Presuming that the geniuses uh, who work on Voyager could, you know, translate its uh, its uh, digital sort of tongue, uh, they know everything that we end up knowing, but they don't have a doctor to advocate for it. 
So they're just like pushing it around on a cart, <laughs> talking to it or something. Yeah. Or maybe not even talking to it, just thinking like, oh, it's communicating with us, kind of like our ship's computer. Because it's really the doctor that immediately sees it as like a kindred spirit and, and an AI. Oh, yeah. So they they probably wouldn't even become buddies with it. Yeah. So by the time that it <laughs> like it gains control, like it's just like it's not even regarding that. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it becomes more like a um, a rogue AI uh, type story where they're just fighting against something that has no personality, you know, like um, Skynet without the Terminator, you know, or, oh, um, yeah. or one of those. This was big in like the 80s when they were smart buildings were a thing where like, oh, the, the computer in the building is has turned against us. And now you get in the elevator and it like crashes the elevator. Like, uh, oh, I guess they do this in the Resident Evil film, like when the Red Queen, you know, right. turns What's the whole uh, facility against people. Episode. Uh, yeah, there was an X-Files like that too. some machine or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, good, good, good call. <laughs> and then, like, it's like that'd be funny if it had a little thing where it could eventually, like, they could teach it how to write letters to communicate with them, and it it says, you know, stuff like "fuck die, you," each. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this is this is a way. Okay, so this isn't a Trek story, but I think this is a way better episode because they put this thing, you know, or it could be sick bay or whatever, but like they put it in a room. And then it locks off the room and they can't get in. And so the entire time they think that maybe they're making inroads to it, but it's not really talking. We don't get a sense of it. It's monolithic, you know? And then finally, I mean, this is just a scarier 2001, I guess I'm picturing, but like finally they have to just make the choice, like living or dead, we've got to kill this thing because it's it wants to kill us. That's alien, I guess. I just, I just made alien. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not hard to get there from what we're talking about, even on the Star Trek side of things. It's an interesting exercise that we do every show because I feel like 75% of the time we just make something that's already made. And I don't I don't know what that says about creativity. Well, <laughs> it goes all the way back to what we say about Voyager and particularly Enterprise about like going back to the well. And it's like maybe they didn't even mean to do that because like when we talk about some of these things, at first it sounds like we're talking about something else. Where it's like, yeah. wow, this is no one has ever done this before. And then by the time we're done with it, we're like, oh, that's like kind of like this. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it all works because, you know, uh, uh, Dan O'Bannon did this himself. <laughs> like he wrote a movie or helped write a movie about people fighting a beach ball. And then later he's like, no, no, just the beach ball. <laughs> Only it's not a beach ball. It's got fangs and it's it's terrifying. And it's designed by the penis guy, uh, the guy that makes chrome penis art. <laughs> and... And we can just, you know, the other, the bomb stuff is fun, but we'll just lose all that stuff. And it's you, just this now. Do you imagine if they gave, they gave the pitch to HR Geiger and he's like, all right. And he comes back and he's like, I brought you a beach ball. <laughs> I brought you a beach ball. It's got, it's got like dicks all over it though. It looks like, yes, right. They're just printed, printed dicks. <laughs> this is a prototype. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well. Uh, once you invent Alien, I think you're done. <laughs> we have to move on. But should we tell people what's coming up on the next episode of Backtracking? Okay. So we are talking about the TNG classic, Yesterday's Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. And um, we're comparing it with the final countdown, which I don't think I have ever seen. Boy, I, who knew that it was going to be uh, defunct sci-fi June when we were talking about <laughs> we got a what theme. we were going to do. 
But yeah, cult cult film June is our theme, and the final countdown is certainly fits into that. Although weirdly, the final countdown's a funny film, and we'll talk about this next week. But you never really know, you know how movies are going to do. Uh, I think that's just the way that the world works. But you never know like what's going to last. And sometimes you can get a film that's got like a bunch of fairly famous stars in it and is like about the American military and sci-fi. And you think like this is going to be huge. And then it's like completely disappears. So like who would have thought that a Kirk Douglas Martin Sheen movie, you know, set on uh, on the USS Nimitz or whatever is uh is 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 going to just completely disappear off the face of the earth uh, by the right. time uh, 2022 rolls around. But that's what you got. Yeah, I kind of have that experience all the time now because I, I get more and more into like looking into people's filmographies and stuff. And there's yeah. so many movies I discover that's like, oh, this has this person and this person and was directed by this person. And I've yeah. literally never even heard of it. Like, maybe yeah. that's just me. Maybe yeah. I just don't know movies that much. But I'm like, how there's so many movies that exist and then you just like they everyone just forgets and try yeah. i'm like i gotta know what all these movies are it's it's you know in six years they would do uh top gun you know which would be uh, a, a very big big success and is also about ships and a carrier and stuff like that but nobody wanted this in 1980 i guess <laughs> too ahead of its time this is also kind of like copyright-free June and also kind of Roku June because uh, both of these films, I don't think anybody holds or really cares about the copyright anymore because you can watch them essentially anywhere for just about free. Yeah. Dark Star is on YouTube, although it's also every 2-bit Annie you know, streaming service in the world also has it, uh, presumably because the copyright was never renewed. Well, good. That's what they should do. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, next time on the show, the final countdown and uh, get your Europe jokes ready for that show. Uh, That's it for this week's backtracking. And thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend and follow us at at backtracking on Twitter and tell us what you think that we should look at in future episodes. Gooey, tell the people where they can find you online. Uh, You go check me out on Twitter. I'm at gooey fame and i'm at at k-a-1-i-b-a-n on twitter you can find all of the shows on the just enough trope network at at just enough trope on twitter and we will be back next week for uh, july 4th and a very patriotic film the final countdown until then we're signing off and we'll see you soon keep on trekking (laughs) 